Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. Yeah, I have no sight at all, uh, no light perception, nothing. Uh, and it's been that way since uh, 2008. At the age of 45, Chris Downey became blind. Turned out I had a, a tumor located right at my optic nerves that had to be surgically removed. Instantly lost all sight. To continue working as an architect, Chris develops new strategies to compensate for his vision loss. But give me a sense of what a blind architect does and, and to what extent it's any different from what you would have done when you were sighted. I was fascinated walking through buildings that I knew sighted, but I was experiencing them in a different way. I was hearing the architecture. I was feeling the space. Lots to talk about today. Uh, I think you know we're going to talk a little about blindness, and I hope a lot about uh, architecture because um, uh, obviously the overlap there is something that a lot of people are going to find incongruous, right? Because architecture seems so much yeah. to be a visual medium. Uh, so I'm interested in getting into that. Why don't we start uh, as we often do by just getting a sense of where your eyesight is and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and how you got there. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, we interview people who, uh, have, you know, have never been able to see anything, people who used to be able to see a lot and now don't see so much and everything in between. So, uh, right. so why don't you start us off with that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I have no sight at all, uh, no light perception, nothing. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. been that way since, uh, 2008, uh, mm-hmm. when I was, uh, 45 at the time. So I saw for my first 45 years of my life. Uh, and, and, then, you, and you have relatively normal sight up till then? Yeah, or? yeah I did. Yeah, it yeah. was uh, fully normal. It was, you know, I was in my mid-40s, so my sight was starting to degrade sure. a little bit, and I just thought it was normal normal business. Uh, right. Just reading over, using over-the-counter reading glasses the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that was uh, prompted, prompted some eye checks, really a function of, trying to play baseball with my son where I couldn't really see the ball coming out of his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just like a big fuzzball. So anyway, I had it diagnosed and turned out I had a, a, a tumor located right at my optic nerves that had to be surgically uh-huh. removed. Uh, so mm-hmm. they uh, had it removed and it was successful. Uh, but as a consequence of the surgery, uh, I, I lost all, all instantly lost all sight wow. um, from the surgery. Yeah. How, 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 how do you handle that emotionally? Uh, I say it was one heck of a bad day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, did you, uh, did you, know, you know going into surgery that that's what was going to be the outcome? No, I had it as a, the surgeon. He was a specialist. Uh, it was like I called around the country looking for a specialist, and everybody was like, the, the guy's in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, went with him, and he gave it a 4% chance of sight loss. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, man, uh, so although, you really didn't know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, so I had read, read for that procedure in the size of the tumor that they other uh, typically they considered about a 40% chance of sight loss, but uh-huh. uh, he didn't foresee that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was a total, I did not go in thinking at all about losing my sight. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and even after like it failed the second day after the surgery and during the, you know, they started trying to restore it and then, and, you know, I never thought that they wouldn't get it. I just figured yeah. I'm like the lucky type, but I'm, I'm good. They got it. And, yeah. uh, 
and it was the day they came in to say that we're done. There's nothing else we can do. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the bad day, and that's that's when a social worker came in to visit and said that was giving me all the lowdown of where I got to go to get you know register with the, you know to deal with social security to deal with getting my rehab started. Blah blah blah. You're and like, hey, I get like, that sweet tax deduction now. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a silver lining of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And then she said, and I see that you're an architect. See that on your form, so we can talk about career alternatives. So mm-hmm. that's when things started really sinking in. Yeah. It, it's like not only was it the day that I realized, okay, that's this is my new normal, but then within six hours, I was you know being confronted with yeah, things are going to be really different. You know. Yeah, expectations are changing. What what society thinks is possible? Yeah, all of a sudden it was just like boom! Here come the walls. Yeah, so so yeah, that that was a heavy a heavy day. Yeah. Now, now, what was the support network like around you? Did you have a lot of family around, or were were, yeah, 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 family around? Not that anybody was prepared for it, uh, but sort of the family situation was such that that uh, my father had passed away from complications from brain surgery when he was uh, uh, 36 and I was seven. So in the grand scheme of things, it kind of put it in a unique perspective. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought, you know, that was a bigger, I thought about not making it out of the surgery because of that family experience, didn't think about sight. But then when it started thinking about it and I just lost, I literally started thinking, oh, I just lost my sight, you know, compared Mm -hmm. to losing your life. And for myself, thinking of my son, who was 10 at the time, is like, he's still got his dad. You know, my husband, my wife, mm. is she's still stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the family was still together. And it's like, all of a sudden, it, it, put, it just put things in a different perspective. Uh, yeah, they, there was fear, not knowing what it all meant. But quickly, I had, I had a friend who was an old cycling partner. He, he visited me in the hospital, and he's like, yeah, we'll get out on tandem. Remember so-and-so mm-hmm. who did this ride with us? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, his wife's blind. They ride tandems. And yeah. uh, we'll figure it out. We'll have you out there in no time. And so yeah. people like that, that sort of sort of from out of nowhere, came up with positive uh, su- suggestions out, out of the box, just from the, get, from the starting line, uh, really good uh, ideas and, and positive thinking. And, and then quickly got connected with – Sort of the wonderful thing about being in the San Francisco Bay Area is there's a really cool, really high-performing blind community. And and within no time, I got dialed into that and had good mentors, good good suggestions, good just just an awesome sort of set of role models and, and pr- provocateurs and challengers. And uh, yeah, it's almost as like, this is like a perfect scenario for for confronting uh, something like this, and it became a quickly became more of an adventure, and I quickly accepted it. By the time I was discharged from the hospital, I was like, "Yeah, let's get this going." And so it was. Uh, I compressed a lot of stuff into a short, short answer, but but it was all sort of working uh, together towards uh, a positive out, outlook and a very determined, uh, quick exit from the hospital and wanting to get get the training I needed and get on with life. 
So you decided to stay in architecture against yeah. the vice, the advice of the social worker. So let's hear about that. What, uh, how, how did, were you able to stay at the same firm and the same job or did they figure out new ways for you? Or did you go find a place where you could fit in? Well, I was, uh, I went back to the office a month after losing my sight. Uh, and you know, re- rehab hadn't kicked in. Uh, I just, I knew there were things that I could do without sight, uh, even before I had the particular, you know, blindness skills. Uh, but in the job that I had, I was a managing director of an architectural firm. Uh, I was managing, managing people, managing uh, accounts, uh, managing clients, mm-hmm. consultants, all sorts of things, uh, all of which I could do quite well. Uh, I, since I had only been gone for a month, I knew all the projects. I generally knew where they mm-hmm. were. So it was easy for me to just pick up and go with where I was. And I wanted to get back just to start figuring it out because there, there aren't any, any books out there on, on how to be a blind architect. Uh, so I yeah. figured you, know, <laughs> you got to get in there and start figuring it out for yourself. Uh, and, uh, and it actually worked out pretty well because there were those things that I could do. But one thing I didn't anticipate was that I then got, I, my case was handled as a job retention case. And, and I stayed at home. I didn't go away for the training. Mm-hmm. And, and then my O&M was largely about, I want to get to the bus and get to my office independently as quick as I can. So that's job one. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, for technology, it's like I want to get up and start using my computer as fast as possible. So the technology uh, trainer was blind, had been blind since birth, uh, and he came to my office. So I didn't think of it at the time, but the people in the office had the benefit of not just seeing me as this new being, don't know which end up is up blind guy, but this other guy that, that uh, came in and just had it nailed. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, for me, I was thinking, you know, if I can get to half his speed uh, without sight, then I'll be full, I'll be ahead of where I was fully sighted. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, it gave me that challenge. But then they saw him and realized, you know, okay, there's a, there's a, there's a different trajectory here. There's possibilities. There's all sorts of abilities. So they weren't, they could sort of make their own assessment based on, where they could see things, you know, generally ending up in terms of ability. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so that was really helpful. And but it was two thousand and eight, uh, so the economy was in the tank, and our firm was taking mm-hmm. it hard. Architecture is very susceptible to economic ebbs and flows. Uh, we were right. having layoffs throughout the year. I stayed on till December. That did give me the challenge of starting up uh, two thousand, you know, two thousand and nine, uh, January you know, unemployed and being blind for less than a year and a rather, you know, daunting task of in that economy trying to find a job. Uh, yes. yeah, but I, I just, just with incredibly uh, luck, good luck of insightful networking and sort of my sort of plotting a course through it, placed one phone call that was like the right, right call to make who reached out to someone who, I uh, happened to be doing a polytrauma and blind rehabilitation center for the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, and uh, went and interviewed. It was the first time I'd interviewed in like 25 years for a job, 20 years for a job mm. and, uh, and and got it. They were out to, for them on the project they were doing. The fact that I was blind, uh, but an architect with 20 years of uh, sighted experience before I lost my sight. They saw it as a real value, a real, uh, real gift to the team, 
Uh, and because the VA had kept asking them, how do you know what you're doing makes any sense and is the right thing to do for veterans that are experiencing sight loss and they're for training? Mm-hmm. How do you know? Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I became part of that design team. And so I was sort of like their vet- blinded veteran uh, embedded in, as part of their design team, uh, bringing them sort of points of views and experiences and things that they never would have thought of in terms of what that experience is like. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that it was about overly uh, adapting things, but even things like just knowing how exhausting it is, mentally exhausting, uh, and and the need for places to rest, have some relaxation, get outside, get some fresh air, uh, and just the idea that, oh, yeah, it's just downstairs, either down the stairs or down the elevator around the corner and out into this courtyard. Sounds mm-hmm. really close if you're sighted, if you're new to sight loss. Yeah. That's that you're going to be exhausted before you get there. <laughs> Very interesting. So, so yeah, tell me more about the kinds of projects yeah. you've worked on over the last ten years. Either you tell me about a favorite yeah. project, you tell me what you're working on right now, but give me a yeah. sense yeah. of what a blind architect does and and to what extent it's any different from what you would have done. Right. When you were saying. So, uh, with the, that cue from that first project after I lost my site after I, after I lost my job and had to look for something new, I realized that there was. Uh, a there was a unique value uh, in the particular projects projects that were for the blind and visually impaired for whatever reason had a unique interest uh, or focus on the blind community uh, and that no architects had any experience in that so it was sort of a niche market uh, and rather than going mm-hmm. to work with a firm I went off off on my own as a consultant and started because mm-hmm. I those opportunities aren't too frequent on a very localized level. So it needed to be national. Right. Uh, and right. Uh, so I set myself up for that and uh, started networking on a national level. And uh, it, so all those opportunities were, you know, there are centers, uh, eye centers, uh, healthcare. Uh, first one being the Duke University uh, Eye Center, uh, where I was really focusing on the patient, visually impaired uh, patient centered design. Uh, sort of working mm-hmm. with the team, uh, understanding how a, a patient that's blind and visually impaired, what that is they're working with, whether it's a visually accessible environment for those with low vision or uh, sensory cues and intuitive structures and things that make it more uh, manage, uh, appropriate for blind, non-visual navigation. But then got involved, quickly got involved in transportation there's a large transportation mm-hmm. project in San Francisco. It's a Salesforce transit center. It's a big bus, primarily a bus facility uh, for mm-hmm. Transbay buses coming across the Bay Bridge uh, from the East Bay into San Francisco. You know, this is a four block long transit facility, a bus deck that's on the third floor of the building that runs for, for uh, four blocks. And this thing is going to be a workout to navigate, to understand, yeah. to get oriented get your orientation, uh, be able to travel it. And uh, I said, so, you know, it's not for the blind community, but we're a captive community here in the Bay Area. Initially, there was a very ornate uh, terrazzo floor art piece that was the, the, uh, the platform, uh, and they didn't want to do anything visual within that. Uh, but I convinced them that by creating sort of this, and, and there was a real challenge to be able to define a line, to be able to walk from one end to the other, 
uh, just given the nature of things, given all the the uh, columns, all the seating and, and different things that were in the way. But I found these two lines that they already defined in the architecture. There was something called a control joint. Control joint. And I said, if we can make that so that it's uh, a groove and a, perhaps a series of grooves, then that's something mm-hmm. we, that's cane detectable. Uh, and mm-hmm. then we'll be able to follow that uh, up and down either side of the, the length of the platform. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, then, and then worked with a textured uh, acid etched finish on the terrazzo that when you, that would lead to connect that, those tactile grooves uh, to the, the open areas of uh, vertical transportation for escalators and stairs and elevators to go down to the street level. At age 45, Chris Downey had pretty much constructed the life he'd always wanted. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Here you are in a profession that basically requires you to read read designs and draw designs. You must have thought in your head, that is insurmountable. No, the creative process is an intellectual process. It's how you think. So I just needed new tools. New tools? Downey found a printer that could emboss architectural drawings so that he could read and understand through touch. They look like normal prints, normal drawings on the computer, but then they just come out in tactile form. And he says something surprising started to happen. He could no longer see buildings and spaces, but he began hearing them. The sounds, the textures, and the sound changes because there's a canopy overhead. You can sense that we're under a canopy? Yes. It's all a matter of how the sound works from the tip of the cane. I was fascinated walking through buildings that I knew sighted, but I was experiencing them in a different way. I was hearing the architecture. I was feeling the space. We're committed transit users. So the question was, how on earth do you navigate this size of facility if you're blind? His solution? Grooves set into the concrete running the entire length of the platform. Now we just follow this, following those grooves. With a subtle change from smooth to textured concrete to signal where to turn to get to the escalators. Let me let me ask you about technology, just because I'm always hoping that I, uh, selfishly, and also our listeners, uh, might get some tips. Mm-hmm. So A, if anything new uh, that you're finding in uh, what we might call blind tech, <laughs> uh, anything that you've you know, taken up in the last year or so that's made a meaningful difference in your life, love to hear about that. Or if there's an old reliable that's just like incredible and you you know want to want to shout out and yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, you know, creator, love to hear about that too. Any any anything that's making a difference for you? I, I'm I'm still just totally thrilled with my sort of the uh, the iPhone. Uh, and the yeah. functionality and the 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 just the being a mass produced thing with everybody else and the just yeah. the triple tack on the home key to get you know make it you know take a voiceover off and hand it off to somebody else mm-hmm. you know so it's cool. yeah. yeah but I'm uh, it it I'm just the fact that you can do so much with it and that combined mm-hmm. with my bone conduction headset the the mm-hmm. air uh, Trex Air are you using the aftershocks yeah yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and I, I enjoy those. Yeah, well, I I put them on in the morning and I take them off at night. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, unless my wife tells me get 
take those things away for now. <laughs> you know what? It's it's funny because I I wear I don't I use the aftershock sometimes. Mm-hmm. Other time, a lot of times I use uh, Beats Beats X by yeah. Dre, which you know they uh, kind of hang around your neck. Yeah, yeah. Um, or now I have a, a knockoff brand because the Beats X kept breaking. Mm-hmm. I'm like I'm not going to spend 150 dollars yeah. and have them break yeah. all the time. And um and it's funny because yeah, my wife will ask me to take them off for photos. I'm mm-hmm. like, would you ask a guy with a with a prosthetic <laughs> leg to take his leg off? I don't understand. Like this is part of who I am yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's, uh, I use it, uh, you know, for all the normal things, but there's a, uh, you know, we talked about the tandem bikes, but I eventually, mm-hmm. I don't do that as much. It's just logistically, it's really challenging to schedule in other yeah. riders. So I, yeah. I got introduced to rowing. Uh, so I've been on oh. a crew team for the last 10 years. And, oh, nice. And uh, Do you use a concept too? Yeah, I use a concept too. And it's awesome because it's Me a too. multi. Me too. Yeah, so, Love it. So it's a great multi-sensory sport. And no, so sorry. We we should just say for people who aren't familiar that the the some some rowers, some college rowers from I forget Brown, I think, mm-hmm. from university or something, developed this uh, rowing machine, the Concept Two mm-hmm. rower uh, that most people have probably seen at right. one point or another in yeah. a gym or what have you, and it's got the big fan on it, and it's just phenomenal. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's kind of beautifully designed. I guess as an architect, I'm not surprised you would choose it, right? right? Because it's got sort of this beautiful design, uh, kind of form follows function mm-hmm. kind of uh, yeah. approach to design and then it's um and uh whatever it just you know it's funny because i got frustrated because i couldn't see the screen and there's an app where you can do the screen on the phone but you know what it doesn't matter i just i just row until i can't row anymore and it's uh it's a great full body workout and everything obviously can't compare to being out on the water um so do you you row with a you row with a with a team with an eight or whatever yeah i do i do pairs doubles fours and eights uh yeah different positions in the boat uh, and, and does it, does it, does the site cause you to get out of rhythm or, or is that not really a big part of staying in rhythm? As I've gotten, like I'm on a, on our top competitive team and there, mm-hmm. there, it is so fine tuned that I'm really mm-hmm. having to adjust to sort of, uh, to quicker catches when you get your blade in the water and you push with your legs, I'm having to adjust really micro scale things and that's challenging but it's doable and i'm getting better at it uh mm-hmm. and uh but you know it's like they're most teams have practices you know drills where they close they row with their eyes closed so they get mm-hmm. they get accustomed to hearing and feeling what they need to to row with instead of relying on their sight so it just is like i'm in the the perpetual uh eyes closed rowing program uh but it all right. it all works mm-hmm. and and uh but where I was going with the technology is that uh, we have land practices as well, as well. So we're all, the whole team will be on the Concept2 rowers, uh, rowing mm-hmm. machines. And <clears throat> we, we try to row together, even though we're not in the boat. We want to be doing all the strokes, all the finishes, everything same. together the in same. Rhythm. So I've got to hear them. And you were saying how you couldn't, you know, we can't see the monitor. But I do use that app that they developed. So I'm getting data points telling me what my mm-hmm. stroke rate is, uh, how mm-hmm. uh, what's called the pacing, how how long it takes to go 500 meters. Uh, I'm getting the overall distance if it's a distance piece for time for a time piece. So I'm getting that information through my uh, aftershocks. Uh, but since it's bone conduction, I can still hear the other rowers. So I'm syncing right. up with what I'm hearing with them. But then I'm getting, I can dial it in, whether it's every 15 seconds, every 30 seconds, or every minute, I'm getting the data points that I need to hear to to sort of 
you know, with data comes focus. You know, if you just sit down yeah. on the erg, you know, you're just going to be in a row, have a good time. But if you're trying to hit splits or trying to, to better your time, you need to have that data to constantly give you that challenge to, you know, bring your splits down or whatever you got to do. So, you know, right. so I can hear the data through the, through the app and I can hear the other rower. So, so it's a, it's a, as a being part of that team, it's a really critical uh, tool to have uh, to do that. I guess that's a, that's a good point. That's right. I'm just rowing for exercise. I'm yeah. not, uh, I haven't tried to go out on the water yeah. or do anything with a team and I'm terrible, but, but the point <laughs> is, I, uh, but it's still, but it is just, but even just as an exercise form, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. Any other, any other apps there? So that's, a, that's a great one. The concept to, yeah. uh, rowing app, any yeah. other, um, any other, any other apps you've, uh, you've gotten to in the habit of using in the last uh, couple of years or anything that's a, that's an old reliable, that's a, a big difference maker for I'd, you besides the built-ins? I'd, I'd say the, the, uh, the, it's still, it's kind of like the suite of things. Uh, I thinking mm-hmm. there was this great, great ride, uh, trip to the airport where I was on my own. So yeah, of course, you know, I download the, the digital boarding pass, get that on my, you know, have that on my phone ready yep. to go. I request, the the right share hop in the car go out to the airport uh when i'm in airports i tend to use uh the uh ira uh, the ira uh, service so yeah uh, yep. so i get that exciting yeah so i get that going before i get out of the car explain to the driver what's going to happen and i get out so it's awesome i have pre-check already lined up you know uh right through tsa i've got the digital boarding pass i got the ira running and without any assistance just and I'm running late, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's awesome. So I'm like screaming through the airport uh, and, you know, make my way quickly through security, you know, just showing the digital pass on my phone and, and just, you know, help. And I'm just flying down there. I'm just like as close to a full, you know, the full run as I can get. And through mm-hmm. the people movers and, you know, the moving walkways and down to the gate at the far end of the terminal, of course. And made it just in time, and the and the, nice. IRA, the the IRA agent was like, "Man, you rocked it! That's the fastest I've ever been through an airport." <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You know what it reminds me of when it going through mm. the airport with IRA is? Do you know this thing that's big in Europe? Rally car racing. Mm. Do you yeah, know what I'm yeah. talking about? Uh, they base they ba- right. So they basically have this track that mm. goes whatever through driving mm. through the woods and yeah. all this stuff. And there's a, two guys in the car, mm. and you get to go through yeah. the track once. Mm-hmm practice and then the guy and then i think the guy the second guy has a map mm-hmm. right and he's like hard right turn yeah. you know 100 yards yeah. <laughs> it's like that, yeah. that's us now yeah but you know it was just like just the the liberation of being able to do all that uh without having to, to wait around for an agent to you know escort or anything like that but the power of having all that available through through the digital infrastructure and the, the stuff it was just it was awesome to have that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk to you a little about architecture separate yes. from anything related to blindness. Like, right. I don't get a lot of chances to talk to architects mm-hmm. and now I'm getting one. So, yeah. I don't know, tell me some stuff about architecture that I should, let's think of it this way. There's like, you know, 80% of people kind of know pretty much nothing about architecture. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's like a, a, a chunk of people who like read, you know, Tom Wolfe's From Bauhaus to Art mm-hmm. House and, and maybe, uh, you know, read some uh, Vitold uh, Rubzinski columns and so mm-hmm. forth. And, and that's yeah, yeah. the group I'm in. And then there's mm-hmm. people like you who actually know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think architecture is super interesting, but I don't actually know much. So, uh, you know, yeah. teach us something. 
<laughs> so, you know, it is, it involves a lot. It's everything from just basic structures and, you know, engineering. It's about how things stand. You know, the good way of breaking it down is there's this book, uh, the Vitruvius books uh, of, of architecture and it's firmness, commodity, and delight. You know, so yeah. it's got to be firm. It's got to, it's got to stand up. It's got to sustain. It's got to weather. You know, it's got to have that kind of firmness and rigidity. So that's where, you know, there's a lot of science comes to bear in, into that uh, creation. Mm-hmm. Then there's commodity. It's got to have value. You know, it, it's, it's part of the, of the commercial world. You know, it, people just don't, build things for the heck of building things you know mm-hmm. it's it's it brings value to the to life to the city to culture or whatever uh to the homeowner whatever uh and then there's the light uh you know the way of animating life of of uh uh you know contributing in a positive way to the experience not just the value or the firm you know it's like just make it a desirable enjoyable place appropriate mm-hmm. for whatever that function is so if you slice it through any of those three different areas, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg and you, mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta drill down into all those different things. So it's, it's challenging in that it is, it's a, it's high stakes business. Yeah. It's, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of expertise. Uh, the pressure is always there to make it, uh, uh, more economical to save money, to spend less time, time is money. Uh, so there's speed uh, to it, all sorts of things, saving the client money, bringing it on time and budget, you know, all the standard ways of thinking about it. Uh, but then there's the qualitative things uh, and of trying to do that while, you know, dealing with, you know, the time and money and uh, costs of everything uh, and, uh, and the engineering. So it's just, it, it, what's exciting about it is you're really touching on so many different things and it asks a lot of you uh, to in a team to sort of pull something together that makes real sense of all mm-hmm. that stuff uh, and succeeds on all levels. If you, if you fail at one, it's failed. You, know, you, 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 you can't just say, okay, this time I'm only going to deal with commodity. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be, you, know, you can do that. And, and a developer or whomever might be really excited, but at the end of the day, they're done. They they're through saving the money. And does the place work for them? Is it going to survive well over time? Coming up on Dangerous Vision, that architects are the uh, are the are the most appealing, alluring, sexiest men in the world. And what I mean by that is, uh, yeah, the reality is very different from that. And I think you you figure that out quickly. But first. Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Sassy Outwater-Wright. Last week I had the chance to visit Las Vegas, Nevada and see CES, or the Consumer Electronics Show for 2020. And I think what I wanted to focus on today was what is the most innovative thing for the blind and low vision community that I saw at CES. It was a trend that I saw, and the trend was inclusion. The trend was that more and more things have multiple ways to interact with it. It used to be 10 or 15 years ago that all we could do was interact with a keyboard. Now we can interact by touching a a flat screen. Now we can interact with voice. Soon we'll be able to interact just directly with our brains, our BCI, brain-computer interface, they call it. The other thing that was big this year that will affect us is anticipatory technology. 
technology that will predict for us what it thinks our next move is going to be. There are so many of us who are struggling right now to interact with technology because we can't see it. Being able to talk to it, being able to touch it, being able to think at it, being able to interact with it in any other way other than looking at a screen will empower us to do more and more and more things with technology. So this is an incredibly good thing for our community and it was a trend I was very happy to see. But with every good trend comes things we have to watch out for, including privacy, including how do we protect ourselves should this technology have something go wrong with it. If you depend on it every day to do something and suddenly it doesn't work, what do you do? So there's goods and bads here, but I'm very excited to see where we keep going. And thank you again to the CTA Foundation for putting MAPV directly into the center of everything that happened last week at CES. That was a magical experience. And for life as a blind person, I'm sassy at water right. So I don't know if you know this. I, actually, I'm, I, I'll ask you at the end yeah. if, you, if if this is something architects are very aware of. That architects are the um, are the are the most appealing, alluring, sexiest men in the world. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, if you go watch like the last 100 romantic comedies mm-hmm. put out by Hollywood, you will find that like. 40% of all the male leads in those mm. are architects. Like that is the profession that it appears that at least Hollywood thinks yeah, uh, yeah. that women want. And I assume <laughs> that it's because of a, a sort of combination of an artistic yeah. sensibility with practicality and productiveness that somehow makes it uh, just really. So I'm, I'm curious, is that what got you into the field? You like saw these movies, you're like, wait, oh, yeah. the architect always gets the no. or uh, what's the story? <laughs> no, no. something architect, no. something architects joke about or is this just something people in other professions complain about uh, jealously uh, yeah the reality is very different from that and i think you you figure <laughs> that out quickly uh that's not the case uh it's a grueling profession uh and uh few few make it to that point of having both the success and the and the financial success uh so yeah it's yeah, yeah, it happens on rare occasions, but it's it's not the norm, uh, unfortunately. But uh, you know, it made me laugh. I remember there was a time after I'd been blind for a while and was uh, walking through an airport on my own, uh, and and uh, I was just walking down the concourse. I had some time to kill before the plane left. I was going to go get something to eat, so I'm walking on my own to the airport, and out of nowhere, this woman comes up and says, "Excuse me, are you an architect?" And it's like, it's like, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Do I have a tube? Of, I was like, no, on this, I don't have a tube of drawings over my shoulder. I have no, I have no marking, you know, sign, signal of being an architect. And then there's the freaking cane. It's like, what on earth? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you think that would push people in a different direction. Exactly. So I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's cool. It's like it's because uh, I had this professor, my first design professor, is like, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna stand out as being different. You're gonna think different, do things different, and people are just gonna recognize you as being a designer, as being an architect. I was like, all these years, it's been like. 30 years since then, nobody's ever done this before. And now I have no drawings on my back, no tools with me, and I've got a cane. Right. And the public thinks, oh, right. he's an architect. <laughs> so how, how did she think that? How did, how did, how oh, it turned out, uh, unfortunately, her, uh, she worked for Wired Magazine, and they covered, they, they had uh, two things. They, they, they uh, reprinted a story that ran on my work, and her, uh-huh. her twin sister 
is the wife of a of a dear friend of mine. So she had these so two she, things. She yeah, but it, so for that fleeting moment there, I thought I had hit architectural nirvana. <laughs> uh, so we're in a unique position to engage with tech companies, pushing on them uh, and yeah. uh, to make things more accessible, being more engaged with them and having real meaningful conversations at the appropriate time of development on stuff, uh, giving good feedback uh, and becoming a place. Right, if you talk... Mm-hmm. If you talk to Apple, mm-hmm. could you tell them that I really appreciate both voiceover and speak screen, mm-hmm. but the change they just made where speak screen only goes up to 2x speed when mm-hmm. it used to go up to like 3.5x, ah. I don't understand why they had to ah. do that to me. Yeah, I'm sure. Right, just let them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they'll hear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I. Sorry. I cut you off. I'm the world's worst interviewer. Sorry yeah, about that. No. Yes, keep going. So, um, so anyway, you know, very active in technology space, both in training but also in advocacy within the tech industry. Uh, uh, very active within sort of accessibility for the blind and visually impaired, uh, whether it's uh, you know all sorts of technologies in public space, uh, out on the streets or where, wherever. Uh, there's, you know, we have our, our camp, uh, uh, Enchanted Hills Camp up in Napa. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that's, you know, as we say, we, 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 we got you cradled to grave. You know, we were offered mm-hmm. things for everybody. <laughs> uh, and we do have clients, uh, campers that have been going there since kids. Uh, and they're still going there as seniors in, in senior camps uh, and various things. And, um, and, and it's uh, something that in their, in, Currently, we took it from being uh, where we had outsourced the management of the camp. We're doing it all internally, and we're hiring more and more counselors uh, uh, locally from around the country and even internationally that are blind uh, to work as counselors. Uh, And uh, so really making it about blind empowerment uh, and really having those sort of meaningful connections from counselor to to camper uh, and and can- counselors now that were campers uh, and and come back uh, on a regular basis and th- whether it's as a counselor or whatever else so uh, so yeah uh, employment uh, camps uh, uh, technology training advocacy we do we're do you guys get involved with uh, guide dogs and do you have a guide dog I do not have a guide dog uh, it's interesting I worked with one. I, as an architect, I like the cane because it keeps me in contact with the with the environment. You know, I'm really mm-hmm. I I found that with a dog, it was almost too efficient for me. I I missed out so much information uh, that I wanted to explore with a cane as I'm walking around. So it's a conscious decision to stick with with that for me. If I want to go fast, mm-hmm. yeah, guide, guide dogs off awesome. But for me, on my day to day, the cane works well. Uh, but the, at the lighthouse, we do. We actually have a relationship with the guide dogs for the blind in San Rafael. Mm-hmm. In that, for people that do get a dog, guide dog, as you know, you have to have basic O and M skills. Uh, mm-hmm. And oftentimes, it's people you know late, you know midlife or late in life, and a dog is a is a good, quick, appropriate answer for any number of reasons. But they have to get that cane, you know, those those uh, cane skills. So uh, in the lighthouse in our new space, one of the things we uh, built into it were 
uh, dormitories. So we have 29 beds. And so now people that come to get a dog uh, from the Guide Dogs for the Blind, if they don't have O&M training, they haven't sort of gotten through that minimal uh, standard, they come to a lighthouse, they can stay for, uh, I think it's a 10-day process, but I'm not exactly sure about that, how long it is. Mm -hmm. But they stay there and they get their cane travel uh, skills and whatever else they need while they're there. Uh, So we Mm -hmm. have that relationship that works really well. And we also have a relationship with San Francisco State. They have, you know, teach a lot of uh, people within, you know, within the industry. People give training for all sorts of things. And they now come and stay at at our uh, Lighthouse dormitory uh, for events and have training there. So we're really trying to have a big impact uh, culturally uh, through these connections, uh, different types of needs, uh, service mm-hmm. things uh, for people that need to come and have a more immersive experience or those that just need it here and there. Uh, but even through you know, the other things we do, like the Holman Prize for Blind Ambition as an international um, uh, prize for uh blind ideas of things to do it's a funded uh, competition and so that's so there's it's really exciting all that's happening here that's all about sort of the opportunities and the positivity and the promise of what what you can achieve and what you can aspire to and pull off and do as a person uh experiencing sight loss yeah, that's great. Well, so let me turn. I I always ask two people two questions at mm-hmm. the end. One is about a, a book recommendation, or if people aren't huge book lovers, a, a recommendation for uh, some kind of media that they love. Mm-hmm. And um, I read a lot. I, I always read a lot of books, except then I had to stop for years because my eyesight mm-hmm. got too bad. The books on tape were too slow. Yeah. Now that I can use Bookshare mm-hmm. and listen at triple speed yeah. with Voice Dream Reader and yeah. so forth, I uh, I read uh, I read tons of books and and I adore TV, but I don't watch it. Yeah. TV anymore because I can't really see it, uh, which some TV shows are still great, yeah. but you know a lot yeah. of them are, are, are not. Yeah. You know you can't quite appreciate them. So uh, so that's one. And then the other is I'm going to ask you for sort of a favorite story and also uh-huh. give you time to ponder that. <laughs> so. Um, so for books, I'll, I'll buy you a few seconds to think yeah. by mentioning uh, one of my all-time favorite books. I'm always worried that I'm recommending the same books I recommended mm-hmm. before because I just like don't have memorized the list mm-hmm. of things I've recommended. But one of my absolute favorite novels ever is called Carter Beats the Devil. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be uh, set mostly in the San Francisco mm-hmm. and the Bay Area and concerns, in fact, uh, a significant part of the plot uh, revolves around a blind woman mm-hmm. in San Francisco. So it's got lots of connections to our yeah. conversation right, today. Right. Um, but it's a story. It's a fit. It's by um, uh, Glenn Davis. David Gold, who's just an absolutely wonderful novelist, and uh, I, I, it was his first novel. He's written two, and then he he just released a memoir, and I'm hoping the third novel is uh, mm-hmm. is, is coming soon because uh, it, it takes him ten years to write one, yeah. but it's worth it. Yeah. And um, and uh, Carter beats the devil is the fictionalized version of the life of Charles Carter, who was a uh, famous stage magician around the time mm, of Houdini, yeah, you know, early yeah. early 20th century, and the fascinating life he lived and people he encountered and so forth. And uh, so uh, so I would say it's it's hard for me to imagine anyone who likes novels at all not loving this yeah. particular novel. It's just perfect. Well, I'll have to read that. I haven't read that one. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I maybe the books I read aren't as, as uh, you know, I don't read too many novels. Um, I'm reading one now, but my, the, the book that always of, of late, I keep going back to, and I keep telling people about it's almost mm-hmm. somewhat related to the conversation we had about, uh, you know, uh, 
this state of affairs we are here in California and, and we're imagining mm-hmm. how we should live here. Uh, and it's not about that, but it's related to it. And it's a book called Door to Door about the transportation okay. economy by Edward Hume. And it's it's interesting in that it it it's going through sort of all the, the sort of the how the economy is built around transportation and all the sort of efficiencies that are put through it. Uh, and it, it sounds laborious and and boring as can be, mm-hmm. but it's really kind of amazing. Some of the things it, 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 they'll get down mm-hmm. to like what it takes to take get the the pizza dough. For Domino's from the factory to the local mm-hmm. uh, uh, Pizza Hut or Domino's uh, uh, you right. know, uh, place, and how it's shipped, you know, all these things, and all sorts of like these details, like how much mileage is built into an iPhone, which it's either right. enough to take you to fly you from Earth to the moon or to the moon and back, <laughs> is the amount of yeah. transportation embedded into the iPhone. Uh, Amazing, yeah, uh, and it's just the sort of the, the logistics of all these different pieces moving around, but it it eventually sort of comes to bear onto it has this a section of the book where it picks one day in America, uh, and it's like I think it was May thirteenth, I can remember what year, and he basically data sorts all the accidents in the United States into what the mm. cause was, and it's basically building an argument towards. The autom- autonomous vehicle. Uh, I see, uh, and it's it's uh, uh, it's really fascinating. But then he takes it through to the the kind of impact that it could, in his mi- mind, that it's going to have on our culture and the, the impact on the city, uh, the uh, just the cultural impact, and how he talked about teaching his kids to to drive and realizing that's probably the last generation in his family that's ever going to learn to drive it. Right. Drive, and then after right. that, it'll just you know, people driving cars will be like horsemen today. They're just, they're, they're sports mm-hmm. pe- people. And, uh, yeah. um, so anyway, it's a, to me, it was That's... really fascinating thing to really think about sort of the, the level of change, both, both the, 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 uh, real impact of transportation, how things are working today, and then how things could really change significantly based on this new model that we're, still trying to imagine its realities and how, how it'll play it's out. Re- it's, a, it's really amazing. I, you know, it's funny because I've been rooting for autonomous vehicles for so long. Mm-hmm. Thinking, boy, you know, I can't drive, but this will put me on an equal footing. But now that we have, you know, a uh, ride share mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, I, 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 and I'm becoming really blind, mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, wait, the autonomous vehicles are going to suck. I'll never be able to find the damn car. Now there's a driver <laughs> who can actually like help me find the car and get in. Yeah. And if I lose that, but you know, presumably it's going to be a long time before there's literally no. Yeah. But even then anymore. I think there's, and, there are ways to solve that, that nut. So, yeah. So not, yeah. No. No. I'm sure they'll yeah. call. It, well, that's where the hoisin sauce mm-hmm. and the yeah. uh, and the the sea, the sound of Hawaii yeah. and stuff are gonna <laughs> are gonna save us. Yeah. So, all right. So, one last question for you. Okay. I always say to people, look, I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm a professor. I don't know how to do this. And so, if I were really good, I would have elicited like your best ever story, mm-hmm. like the funniest thing that's happened to you, or one of the mo- or an interesting thing you know, which could be about architecture or about anything. It doesn't have to be about blindness, but just your best story, the story like if you got to knock them dead at a cocktail party. You're going to, you know, pull this one out. Um, if you, if you've got a good story that you love to tell, now's the time to share it with yeah. us. I, I'll, I just got to directly ask for it rather than be clever yeah, yeah. enough to, to, to get that story. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, that's a hard one to say. I think you know it is that, hard. That story, I've hard. already shared one. You know that situation of being found in the the laundry room in the dark, you know, folding laundry yeah. and scaring my wife. That's true. To that death. was a good story. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but then you know, there's gosh, uh, um, there's one that always stood out to me. It's like when I was getting my orientation mobility training. Oh, actually, this this will this will be it. Uh, this okay. this uh, yeah, I originally that first place I was working when I first lost my sight to to get home I had to you know to transfer buses so and I would transfer buses on on uh uh Broadway the main street in Oakland in downtown Oakland so mm-hmm. I'm waiting on the side of the street in downtown Oakland waiting for the other bus to come up and and uh I had my phone uh this is before I used aftershocks and it's one reason I used aftershocks now I had my phone. I was in a call, call home, tell my wife that I was heading home. And uh, as I call the number, I put the phone back in my pocket and then I lower my hand. My hand got caught in the cord and it flung, uh-huh. it flung the phone out, out of my pocket, came off, <laughs> came off the cord and it was gone. It was out there in the space. And I'm like, oh, yeah. great. So there I, I dropped to my hands and knees. I got my cane out swinging right. trying to find it on the ground yeah, you're doing the doing the sweep across yeah, with the cane yeah, i've done yeah, it many times yeah. and then I, where's that ice cube i dropped yeah. before everyone in my family slips right. and throws their back yeah, out but this yeah. is this is on the <laughs> sidewalk and on broadway in downtown oakland and you know yeah. i'm right up against the curb you know there are buses and cars whizzing by and and i'm not finding the phone and i'm like yelling out hey help me somebody <laughs> you see the phone yeah. <laughs> and then and then somebody yells it's over here and they give it and they hand it to me and i just take it you know and i just put yeah. the phone back in the pocket and i you know hit the power you know the off button i put it in my pocket and plug the headset back in and then i get a call and it, and it's my wife and i'm like yeah hey she goes are you okay I'm like yeah why she goes Sound like you were having a real problem. <laughs> totally forgotten that I called her and she heard that whole thing with me say help, screaming for help, and buses whizzing by. Oh God, and she was stressful for oh God, her. She was horrified. She she thought that was the big one. It was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, so not definitely not funny for her. Not funny at the time. Uh, and yeah. probably not even funny. Uh, you know but, what they say: comedy is tragedy plus time. You know. Yeah, but and you also got to be able to laugh at your <laughs> laugh at the situation and you know exactly. have fun with it. And that's why you know that's what you know I try to quickly bring to our family and especially with my son. You know, having jokes, playing along, just having fun with things. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so, so much for being with us here today on Dangerous Vision Podcast. This has been a fantastic and, and just fascinating conversation. So I uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Randy. It's fantastic. Great to have some time with you. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.